there were several times in that you you pointed out that you literally when when you wanted to be a hostage negotiator you just showed up at hostage negotiations you know no one told you to go there you just showed up to support who who was ever there so that i, I interpret it as a way of gaining more experience uh, did i get that wrong yeah just, no just showing up man because like i missed out in two really significant events by not showing up like there was there was a woman who drove a van into the front gate at the UN and said she'd soaked herself with gasoline. That happened the day after I got back from the FBI hostage negotiation training. And I was tentative. And I thought, you know, this has got to be right square in what we should be doing. You know, and I called some people, I called my own supervisor who, you know, the investigative squad I was on. And he's like, nah, you know, did anybody call you? Uh, and I'm like, no, because I wouldn't show up. And th then I missed another one after that. And I was never going to fail to show up again, ever. And I showed up sometimes where I got criticized. I mean, I remember the FBI, um, FBI office in New York has, has an operations center up 24 seven for emergencies. And I heard about a possible hostage siege and I just went on the radio and I said, the news reports of a hostage siege, just letting the command post know, um, you know, I'm on my way, I'm going up there. And the supervisor of the, the command center came on and in a really sarcastic tone says, Chris Voss is calling a hostage siege that's unconfirmed in New York City, just so everybody knows. I mean, trying to ridicule me in front of the largest office in the FBI. The New York office is more than twice the size of the next office down. And I don't know if Washington, D.C. or uh, Los Angeles is the next larger office, but New York is over twice as big as the number two office. And this guy wanted to embarrass me in front of the largest office in the FBI. And I didn't care. Like he was a small minded human being that was intimidated by somebody that would take action and take risk and get out there. And I didn't care. And the biggest turning points in my career came from me just showing up and not caring what the naysayers were going to say. And you talked about when you were in New York, were, were, were you a cop in New York or what? <laughs> Say it again. Yeah. And, and the reason why that, that, that kind of gets confused was I was an FBI agent in New York, but I was assigned to the Joint Terrorist Task Force. So it was FBI and NYPD. And so I had PD detectives as partners that I worked with, but I was with the FBI in New York on the task force you talked about this was the mid 80s and it was rough and you would go out into the streets alone because the bad guys figured there's no way a cop's going to be alone and that was that was kind of your cover and and you talk about and i and, and relate this back for everyone you know you talked about you had to be prepared anytime anywhere for anything you were you were in dangerous territory a lot all by yourself yeah yeah in new york in, in the mid to late 80s was a very dangerous place i mean uh, uh, bad government lots of crime in the street there was these uh, it was a phenomenon we call rat packs 
five to seven um, robbers running around, sticking close to the subways because they could, you know, they could physically assault somebody and disappear into the subway. And they'd gotten really sophisticated. Their weapon of choice was a handkerchief. Now, what you can do with a handkerchief is you can wrap your hand with it the way the way a boxer does, and your hand becomes, you know, a hard object that you knock somebody out with really easy. So you knock people out, uh, but it's not against the law to carry a handkerchief. It's against the law to carry a screwdriver. And then also this was, you know, before digital communication. So the radios that we had could be heard on any police scanner. So we basically, we didn't use radios. So you had to, you're following somebody, you could end up anywhere, any dangerous part of town. And the bad guys, you know, if you just understood that the bad guys figured there's no way a cop would be alone, as long as whoever you were fo was following didn't see you, then the other predators on the street would leave you alone as long as you didn't act like a scared rabbit. If you act like you were cool with being there, that meant either that meant that you were probably armed and that there's no way you were going to be by yourself. There are five to seven other people with you and they just couldn't see them. So, you know, I'm walking in the South Bronx by myself at one o'clock in the morning on, on in, in a housing project. I, they figure I got a gun and there's seven other cops with me and they're not going to touch me. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. How do you think that experience would relate to agents and what they need to be doing on a daily basis? That's a great question. Like, first of all, um, it's quiet confidence. Like, there's a lot of discussion about what confidence is. And confidence is not boisterousness. Quiet confidence comes from competence. And when you're a full fee agent, you're competent. You don't, you don't have to make a really loud, splashy, uh, sexy listing presentation. You know, it's, it's, and it's saying in a, in a first conversation with a potential client, quietly confident because you're competent. You know, I'm a full service, full fee agent. You're just stating, like, you know, I wear glasses. I, I have brown hair. I, I grew up in Iowa. You're just stating a fact. It's this quiet confidence. I'm running around a tough, tough neighborhood in, in New York City in, in the 80s. I got, I got loud one time, or actually two different times, with bad guys. And it set them off, and it, and it almost turned into a downward spiral. And I realized that I just needed to be quietly confident. We're, we're rolling into the, the other phenomenon that was going on in New York City at the time was these squeegees. I don't know if you guys have ever seen squeegees. But you, uh, it's a way to basically, it's an extortion on the street. You stop at a stoplight um, in New York City at the time, and two or three street people, they got those little squeegees that they clean your windshield with. And they dip the squeegee in water from the street, and then they stop, they start wiping down your windshield, which 
smears your windshield with water, stops you in your tracks. I know where you could go because it's a red light. You're in a bunch of cars. And then they stand there and expect you to pay them for put, put, to putting dirty water on your windshield. And it's a way to extort drivers. And what the squeegees would do was when, you know, 20 cars are stopped, you know, they look around and they look for a lone female first. Because if they just walk up to the door, she's probably going to roll the window down and pay them a few dollars to go away. So they're looking around and looking for lone females. If they got to go to a lone male, that you know, they're going to look for a white collar looking dude, poindexter, you know, librarian kind of guy that's probably not going to push back on them. So I drive into New York City one day. And I'm in my bureau car, and my then wife is in a car following me. She's two or three cars back. And we get stopped at a, at a traffic light. And I see the squeegees run, look around and see her and descend on her. And I immediately get extremely upset. And I jump out of my car. I'm about four cars away. And I start screaming at these guys to get away from her. And they look at me. And they seriously consider whether or not they're going to rush me. I can tell from their body language they're thinking about coming after me because I'm not being quiet. I'm being loud. And the light changes then, and I jump back in the car, and we pull off. And I think, you know, that was just not cool. I mean, like, I almost made that worse by being loud. And sure enough, a block later, we run into another red light. And we're at a different section of street muggers and the traffic stops and she's four cars behind me and four more of these thugs descend on her car. And I get out and this time I just go, yo. And they turn and look at me and I just go. And they looked at me and they looked at her. And he looked at me and he looked at her. And then one of the guys went, what's with that guy? And she goes, I don't know. I don't even know who he is. <laughs> and they all walk away. Like quiet confidence. Quiet confidence. I'm a full service, full fee agent. You say it just like that, as if you're telling them what day it is. You're telling them what time it is to use use the vernacular in, in some in some lingo. Tell them what time it is. What time is it? It's one o'clock. What are you? I'm a full service, full fee agent. It's that simple. Quiet confidence based on competence. You know what you're doing. Subscribe to the Black Swan Group's negotiation newsletter, which is free. It doesn't cost you anything. I had a colleague of the FBI that used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. Here's how you subscribe to The Edge if you're in the United States. Send the text to, the number is 33777, that's 33777. The text message that you send is Black Swan Method, Black Swan Method 233777. Comes to your email inbox on Tuesday mornings when you're ready to rock and roll and get after the week.